What I have found over the years is that Minecraft, more than other games, isn't linear. Like, there's no structured way to play it. There is no leveling system. There's no experience points. There's no, you know, system that says this person's more of a veteran than this person. You join and you're in the same world doing the same stuff on day one. You can just do whatever you want. There's no wrong way to play it. So for any child, you know, <laughs> you could play that for years and years and years and never get tired. Um, but for a child with autism, that's ideal because as much as you have the freedom to do what you want, you can literally create your own world. It's still a world that is bound by code, by rules, by laws, by boundaries. So once you learn these rules to the world, those rules never change. And so you know exactly what to expect. And for somebody who's a creature routine, which autistic people very much are, that's hugely important. You have to know that when you do this, that's going to happen. And you don't get that in the real world. Growing up, Stuart Duncan could often be found playing video games. He was the sort of kid that loved a good puzzle and obsessed over the details, striving for that elusive high score. We're talking like uh, Pong, Tetris, Pac-Man, stuff like that. But uh, I spent a lot of my childhood at the old uh, arcades where you put a quarter in the machine and I would spend a lot of money <laughs> at those arcades playing games all the time. My childhood was a very lonely one. My parents split up and then I ended up with my grandparents who were living in the middle of nowhere and didn't have any toys or there was no other kids or anything. Um, for me personally, like I was always a video game person, but that was because it was something I could do by myself. You know, when you have nothing else, a video game is, is a whole other world, right? Like I, I could lose myself in the video game for hours. Stuart has autism, but he didn't know it until the age of 36 and had a son of his own. My wife and I, we were just talking about everything that he was going through, every way, the way that he experienced the world and the unique challenges he had and everything. And we sort of just stopped for a minute and looked at each other and went, sounds a lot like me. <laughs> it really opened my eyes up to a lot of the, what my childhood was like. And as, as much as an eye-opener as it was, it wasn't until I actually got the actual diagnosis, the doctor confirmed it, and I had the piece of paper, and, and I really sort of looked back, and I'm like, well, that explains that, and that explains that, and explains why I was like that. Instead of just being weird, or a freak, or the person that nobody ever understood, or could never understand other people, or had no reason for knowing why I was so different, now there's a reason, and you just can't explain what a life-changing moment it is for you. Although many people are diagnosed with autism as children, a late diagnosis for adults is fairly common, and for Stuart, it changed his life in more ways than one. Initially, it impacted his marriage. It basically became too overwhelming for her that I had autism, and so did our son. I was already writing about autism, so I was already doing interviews, and I was already talking about our life experience and stuff. But then also, I just didn't, I didn't want to go out. I didn't want to be going to parties or to the beach and stuff like that. And she's an outdoors person. So it was just a lot of different things. And in the beginning, it was, you know, marriage. We were in love. 
But then it was, um, okay, he has autism. This is why all this stuff is happening. But then as that passed, then it was just sort of like, you know, I can't, I can't keep putting up with this. And yeah, it was basically my faults were just too, too, too much. And we both agreed. So kind of split up. Now living by himself and seeing his kids every other week, Stuart suddenly had more time. And seven months later, he'd created a project that would eventually become a full-time job a Minecraft server for kids with autism. I'm James Parkinson from Lawson Media. This is Gameplay. Stories about video games and the virtual worlds that power culture and community. Since its release in 2011, Minecraft has become one of the highest selling games of all time. It sold over 200 million copies as of 2020, and the blocky 8-bit sandbox is especially popular with kids due to the freedom its gameplay offers. Minecraft has been praised for its ability to inspire creativity, and it's won numerous awards, including a BAFTA for Best Family Game. Over 100 million people play Minecraft every month, and many of them are kids with autism. As Stuart explained at the top of the show, the game's structure and mechanics are well suited to people with autism. But playing online can introduce problems, as Stuart learned back in 2013. I saw a lot of parents on social media saying that their children loved Minecraft, but when they tried to play on the public servers, because they had those extremes, they'd be really, really happy when they're happy or really, really mad when they're mad, or they wouldn't understand the social cues or whatever. So they'd go on these public servers and they often would end up being bullied. Um, and specifically like trolls, they look for people that they can push. They want to see how far they could push somebody. And if an autistic person reacts that way, they don't even have to know that they are autistic. They just have to know that, oh, that person got really angry when I did this. Let's see how far we can push it. And so I saw a lot of these parents on social media and um, I realized that they just, they didn't have any place for their kids to play together. There was no special server that would accommodate them. So I... I saw all these people saying, I wish there was, I wish there was, I wish there was. And I thought, I, I can do that. And uh, so I did. Autism can be difficult to define because everyone's experience is a little different. It's a condition that impacts how people feel, how they think, and how they interact with their environment and other people. Some autistic people have trouble with communication and social interaction and a variety of sensory problems. That's the kicker, isn't it? It's it's different for everybody, so it's really hard to explain. But for the most part, and and this is this is probably why it's so different is when you get down to like actual physical differences, like actual neurology. If you were to take a brain scan of the normal, average, typical person, and then you were to take a brain scan of somebody that has autism, any any person that has autism, what you'll find is that the electrical activity, the the actual like neurons that are firing and and the charges that are being passed around the brain are way more extreme, way more elevated in the person with autism. Basically, there's just more activity. So now you have a lot more stimuli. You have a lot more, uh, all the noises, you hear them all. Um, vision, like mo a lot of autistic people can't go to see fireworks, all that sort of stuff. But then also communications and things like you're going to be extremely awkward because you don't know what to say. And when you do know what to say, what you do end up saying isn't what you're wanting to say. And it comes out, you know, like they call it a spectrum because you literally get every extreme and somewhere in the middle of every 
area and fabric of your life. And it's hard to imagine if you're not actually living it. <laughs> it's actually hard to imagine when you are living it, but that's what it's like. So Stuart creates this Minecraft server, calling it Ortcraft. He made a basic website and began inviting people to join. And because the server is only for autistic kids and their families, you first have to request access on the website and then be approved by Stuart, or Autism Father, as he's known online. And the response he received was overwhelming. My very first post on it was to Facebook, just to my friends list, which was about 300 people. And I got 750 emails in the first couple of days. 750 emails. I greatly underestimated just how many people, just how badly this was needed because it got shared around like wildfire, like in private. And it was great. But at the same time, like it, it meant that I couldn't be on the server. Like I was answering emails right out of the gate. As soon as I posted it, I was answering emails and not keeping up. Stuart was completely caught off guard and it meant he had to react pretty quickly, both from a management perspective and a technical one. Firstly, Mojang, Minecraft's developer, makes it pretty easy to create your own server and get up and running. You can go to their website, download the software, start it up, and presto, you've got a server on your computer. You have to know some networking and some technical stuff in order to have other people connect to your home computer through your router, your network, blah, blah, blah. But you can have a home server for you and your family in a couple of clicks. To have something that's more public worldwide or whatever, you can just go to Google and search Minecraft hosting and you'll find dozens of companies that with a couple of clicks you can sign up. Um, seven years ago, I, I was literally $2.50 a month for a starter package to have a hosting uh, service. So I paid the $2.50, I put in the name that I wanted it to be, and it gave me back a server address that I put into Minecraft, and it'll connect, and it was literally minutes. Stuart was a web developer at his day job, so getting started wasn't a problem. But at $2.50 a month, the server would only accommodate about five players at once, and Stuart had around a thousand people wanting to join within days of launching Warcraft. So after a week or so, his hosting fees were up to about $80 a month. And at the same time, a whole community of players is beginning to form, and Stuart quickly learned that he couldn't manage the server on his own. Right away, I had to go and talk to friends. I had to um, talk to people who were joining. So like parents that would join with their kids, I would watch it if they were doing really, really well at helping people or encouraging, supporting people, talking to the kids out of arguments and stuff. Um, I would recruit them and say, do you want to help me run this? Do you want to be an admin? Do you want to be a helper? And, you know, I give you a role and you have more permissions to be able to help take care of the place with me. Probably the best move I ever made was just to say, you know, you, you seem you seem really nice. You're you're being really great with the kids. Can you help? And they did. Stuart now had a small team of volunteers. Admins helped with some of the technical stuff on the back end, and other staff were actively playing the game alongside Orcraft's members and ensuring the community remained a friendly space. Stuart was still doing the bulk of the work and juggling Orcraft with his full-time job. But he soon took on an even greater responsibility. Kids started coming to him with all kinds of problems and mental health challenges, and Stuart was there to listen. It was very exhausting. It's still very exhausting. I've heard so many stories from bullies at school to just not fitting in and feeling alone to abusive parents or parents in denial or um, just the whole gambit. And I'm not a therapist and we make it very clear that we're not therapists. So we can't give them any advice. We can't tell them what they can do to solve these problems or, you know, but we could be a listening ear. 
And that's what we do. We give them as much time as they need, as many hours as it takes, as many days. Sometimes it's all the way through high school. Like it's been seven years I've been running the server. You know, you talk to you talk to like a kid who says that they just want to end it all because it's all so so hard. And you just tell them, you know, you understand and you've had to go through that too. And, you know, th- this community, all of us, we're here for you. And that it shows that you care, right? It shows that I care. It shows that we all care. And that's something. And you just be there. And after eight hours of talking to somebody and finally they feel better and they thank you and they go to bed and then they're there the next day and they thank you again. And it's the best reward you'll ever get in your entire life. But it's also the most exhausting, most stressful. Like I often say like, yeah, I'm sitting here in my chair at home. Yeah, I'm sitting on a video game. But this is the, the toughest thing I've ever had to do in my entire life, but also the most rewarding. Stuart had to learn to manage his own mental health too, stepping away to decompress and letting his volunteers take over for a while. But eventually the workload was so great that he had to find a way to focus on Allcraft full time. And once again, he decided to reach out to its community, starting a Patreon and asking for support. And I set up myself an account and then I turned back to the community and I said, look, I, I need to focus on my family or on you, your families, your players, your kids and give you the proper time necessary. And for that, I need your support. And they did. They, uh, they, the the ones who could, um, obviously it's a free service and I want to keep it that way, but the people who could, they were, they were willing to pledge monthly a uh, donation in order to help keep myself and the server afloat. And it's been, it's been supported that way ever since it's been my full-time job ever since October, 2015. Today, Orcraft has a volunteer staff of around 50 people, with over 12,000 members on the server from around the world. And that number is constantly growing. Stuart receives around 50 to 100 new applications every day. So the Patreon support doesn't just cover hosting fees for the server, it allows Stuart to dedicate the time required to manage an active community of this size. I wake up at 5am, I get right onto the server right away, but I'm in what we call Vanish, where the players can't tell I'm there, but I'm there. And what I'll do is I'll, I'll run around and I'll change the dates on signs and do like the odds and ends here and there so that everything is up to date for that day. And then I will go and answer emails, Facebook messages. I will check social media and stuff like that. And then what I do is whitelist applications. And I'll, I'll go through like 20, 30 of those, depending on how many came in. But it's a lot at all times. So I try to get as many of those done as I can. And then I'll go back to the game and then I actually come out of Vanish. And then I talk to people and I get... Um, what we we call mod requests done, which are like support tickets. So like if a player needs something, they don't ask an admin, they do a mod rec and then we get to it when we're ready. So anyway, I get get all those things done and I talk to the players and see how they are doing. And uh, I say hi to all the the players in Australia because it'll be nighttime for them when it's morning for me and, you know, hear about their day and stuff. And then the UK players come on and I talk to them and stuff. And then I'll take a break around lunchtime and then I have to do plug-in stuff. So I got to check for updates. I got to check for updates for the server. I got to check for um, any glitches. I got to check for all that sort of stuff. Um, I start working on, so I like to make like custom mobs. So Minecraft has zombies and skeletons and stuff like that. I like to make my own custom stuff. So then we're working on, you know, our own, our own custom changes to the game. We have like um, a, a system where 
when you kill a monster or an animal, like a cow or a pig or whatever, it'll drop its head sometimes, not always. And on very, very rare occasions, it'll drop a shiny head. It's a lot like Pokemon. You can get shiny Pokemon. So I like to go and find fun new things to do or to make things better, or I add in new shinies that are not already there, stuff like that. Um, that stuff gets done in the afternoon. And then I go back into game again, um, out of Vanish again, and then I'm talking to those players, and then we're playing and stuff. And then I'll get all the players together, and we'll do like a big community fight with all the mobs and all the custom stuff I've done and everything. We all get in there, and it's like a huge epic battle for an hour, and lots of people die over and over again. It's a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> and then when that's done, then I get you know the evening mod request done, and I, I wrap stuff up and talk to the players and stuff. And then the next admin or whoever will come on, and by then it'll be 10, 30, 11 o'clock. So for me personally, the others are all volunteers. They do their, they sign on, do mod requests and play with the kids and stuff. For me, I I'm doing 18 to 20 hour days. Like most online communities, Orcraft has some basic rules that players must abide by designed to keep the community safe and welcoming and the game running smoothly. They're pretty straightforward. Um, there's a lot of them, <laughs> but there's like no swearing, you know, no being mean to each other, uh, no talking about inappropriate topics. So we have players like as young as six years old. So we don't want them talking about, you know, teenage topics, relationships or horror movies or things like that. Right. Anything that's not appropriate for a six year old shouldn't be on there. And for the most part, everybody's cool with that. Other than that, it's it's a lot of maintenance rules. So, for example, like you can't have. 300 chickens at your farm because that's too many when when you consider that there could be 80 people on if there's 80 people with 300 chickens each that adds up to a lot of chickens and then and then that takes up hardware the cpu and the ram starts to to falter and the game slows down so we've got like you know some rules for you can only build so much stuff before it starts to impact other people on the server but yeah for the most part it's all the rules are all about equality and kindness and and that's kind of what our system is based on like we have um things like uh player of the week and cbas which are short for copying awesome and that's uh our way of rewarding players for being generous and kind and friendly to each other caught being awesome i love that and these social rules and reward systems aren't the only thing that makes allcraft unique Stuart also used Minecraft itself to create virtual spaces that are designed specifically for kids with autism. That's coming up after the break. As an independent podcast, listener support is incredibly important for gameplay. So if the show is valuable to you, please consider becoming a gameplay member. Memberships are just $5 US a month or $50 US a year. You'll receive an ad-free podcast feed, bonus content, and I'll personally send you a gameplay sticker pack. There is a free tier as well if you're not in a position to contribute monetarily, but if you can, you'll be actively helping to make the podcast sustainable so I can continue to bring you stories you care about. Sign up now at gameplay.co slash membership. Thanks. In the physical world, multisensory environments are these relaxing rooms that are specifically designed as therapeutic spaces for people with sensory processing disorder. 
They have things like different coloured lights, glass tubes of bubbling water, and objects with a variety of textures. They can be customised for different levels of sensory input, and they're often found in schools, community centres, and even airports. These kinds of spaces allow autistic people to self-regulate, especially when they're feeling overwhelmed. And Stuart wanted to recreate this experience within Minecraft. So what we tried to do on Artcraft was simulate that. So we created rooms that have changing lights that will flicker all over the place. We have some that just have flowing water. We have one that is completely black. It's all darkness except for little white dots, which simulates being in outer space. Um, we have one where it's low gravity, so you can jump up really, really high and then float back down to the ground. And all these rooms have the chat turned off. So there could be 50 people on the server all talking about all kinds of different things. And you go to one of these calm rooms and the chat just stops. There's just no more talking. And you go in there and you're listening to the lava bubble or the water running or watching the lights move or you're in darkness or whatever. So anytime you're feeling overwhelmed by real life or you're feeling overwhelmed on the server, if there's just too much activity or whatever's going on, you don't have to leave the game. You can still be on the server you want to be on. You just go and take this little break in this calm room until all that crazy activity in your mind calms itself down and then you can come back out of there and rejoin and keep on playing. Warcraft has received widespread media coverage over the years, including the BBC, BuzzFeed and PC Gamer. Stewart even gave a TED talk in 2017, and Orcraft has also caught the attention of researchers. I started my PhD interested in designing assistive technology, so technology that could support people with disabilities. And very quickly after I started my program, I came across the Orcraft server and found kind of a happy place between my interest in supporting disabled folks and video games, which is like a personal hobby and passion of mine. So it kind of just all clicked together. This is Dr. Kate Ringland. The first time I logged on, I was completely overwhelmed. (laughs) Um, It was a lot the very first day because the kids are all in the text chatting. There was just a lot to take in all at once. But once I kind of figured out what was going on and, and, and oriented a little bit, um, everyone was super friendly. Everyone came and said hello. Kids came up and, and gave me things. They shared their stuff with me. They invited me to come play with them. So it was, it was a really kind of wonderful, almost surreal experience as someone who's been in less nice gamer spaces um, to really have that kind of really positive welcoming experience. Kate spent a lot of time within the Orcraft community, observing and interacting with players. And she discovered that a lot of these kids who may have difficulties with social interaction in the physical world were having a very different experience within Minecraft. One example was a boy who had recruited other players to help build a huge mansion. So I got to just ask him questions. How did he build it? Uh, What inspired him? Things like that. And he described to me this entire process where he had talked to other kids in Artcraft, told them he really wanted to build something. They kind of formed a little team. So it was kind of like he was like this little project manager. And they they worked together. They went on uh, Google and found images of buildings they were interested in. They translated that into something they wanted to build in the game. And they worked together as a team to put all this together. 
And for me, the thing that was really striking is, is these, these are potentially kids that are struggling in school or they're being bullied in other places or they're having trouble making friends. And here was a space where they're able to not only you know, hang out and be friends with other people, but they're, they're doing teamwork, they're, they're working together in, in some really meaningful ways and they have a real tangible kind of output afterwards. I, I really liked that. I think that that was perhaps the most impressive part of the entire Opcraft experience for me was seeing the actual creative artifacts that were coming out of these kids and coming together as they were collaborating and doing things that we often really dismiss when we're thinking about those with autism. So the big takeaway from Autcraft in general is it was this kind of space where kids are able to do that. And I think a lot of that, you know, is kind of a combination of the game Minecraft, but then also the very kind of special experience that is created within the Autcraft community itself. Kate's research found that Orcraft is empowering autistic kids to customise their own experience and express their creativity, all within a space that's safe and consistent. They're also developing communication skills, self-confidence, and learning to self-regulate, both their mood and sensory experience. So the great thing about spaces like Autcraft is it kind of takes away some of those barriers that are being created in the physical world. So it takes away the barrier of having to worry all the time about making eye contact, even though it's painful for you, or having to interpret a lot of nonverbal cues that, that you might find completely incomprehensible. So all of a sudden you're able to do kind of these more social play type activities and explore yourself in new ways because you're not worrying about those other things that people keep expecting you to have to do. Um, So it's kind of nice in that way in that kids are able to then relax a little bit and be their more true self and in that then learn who they are and you know who they want to become. Stuart says that some kids were nonverbal when they first joined Orcraft, but being part of the community helped them develop those skills. One of them that I'm thinking of right now, she's actually a helper. She's actually earned a rank and she helps to run the server and, you know, settle arguments and stuff like that. Um, she didn't really, she said words and stuff, but she wasn't really uh, a verbal communicator before having joined the server. It gave her those, those skills, the confidence, um, learning what to say. Uh, how to how to communicate effectively and stuff, even if it was in text, gave her what she needed to be able to speak. But more so than that, like uh, I hear from a lot of parents who say that their kids are making their first friends ever. And like in real life, not just on the server. And that's because they're learning how to make friends on the server first. So they're learning how to how to forgive mistakes, how to how to have accidents and not feel so devastated and guilty about it that you know, they just learn from it and move on. Um, how to be a friend, not just have a friend. They learn a lot of the skills talking to each other here in an environment where it's safe to do that. A great story that Stuart points to a lot is where one child came up with his own solution to make the in-game chat easier to read. He'd use rows of single characters as line breakers. But the other kids got upset thinking he was just spamming the chat. What I did was I'd already been in contact with his guardian, who I believe was his grandmother. And I messaged her and I said this seems out of character. Can you tell me why you think he would be doing this? And she said, Oh, he, he's pretty much lost his vision in one eye and he's starting to lose it in the other eye too. 
So he's having a really hard time keeping up with the chat, with reading the chat, especially when it starts going fast. And so what he's doing is when he does like a long line of A's in the chat is he's breaking it up into pieces. So now he's got a top half and a bottom half of the chat to read. And I thought, that's actually pretty clever. So I actually got together with a guy I know who does code. He does plugins and stuff. And we sat up all night overnight and we came up with a brand new plugin where you could do a command, which was a split chat and then whatever character you wanted. So you can put in a dash, equal signs, asterisks. You can put in the letter A um, or you can put in like a blank space or you can do whatever you want. And then when you press enter, that becomes your line splitter. So then every, in between every single line that appears in chat is your separator. So you can even do like rainbow. You can do colorful letters and stuff, and it'll do like a rainbow in between each line. And it separates everything. It makes it more visible for everybody to see. But we also took it one step further. And we made it so that um, your name, if somebody says if somebody says autism father in chat, I will see my name stand out because it'll be in a different color. Nobody else will see it in a different color, just me. So your name would be highlighted. Um, we added chat channels. So now not only can you go to a calm room where chat is turned off, but now if you and two other people want to play or you're just building something together or you're mining or you want to play hide and seek together, uh, you go into a chat channel. And now only the three of you are talking and you don't see the rest of chat and the rest of chat doesn't see you. Uh, so we added a bunch of features like that. And it was basically to accommodate this one kid, but everybody on the server uses all of those features every single day. The chat splitter was so useful that Mojang have now implemented it in Minecraft as a standard feature. Kate Ringland's research has received several best paper awards and nominations, and has helped spark conversation, encouraging people to think differently about assistive technology. She spent around 80 hours in the Orcraft community, and the findings she collected and published were shared openly for parents and anyone else to access. It's clear that a space like Orcraft offers a lot of benefits and opportunities for kids with autism. However, there are still many legitimate concerns over the impact of video games on children with ASD, like behavioural problems and a high risk of addiction. But it's also going to be different for each individual, and it's ultimately up to parents to monitor what their child is playing, how much they're playing, the influence it's having, and finding a healthy balance. Truly finding that balance is something that's going to look different for every family. It's difficult, especially if this is their safe space, it's going to be hard. And I'll say here too that, yeah, video games have gotten a really bad rap and, and we still have a long ways to go in kind of changing public opinion about, you know, kind of some of the more controversial aspects of them. But I feel like the, the tide is, is changing and we are seeing kind of more, more positive game spaces. And as the kind of more academic research community shifts their gaze, I think that that eventually will trickle down to the rest of society. As technology becomes more ubiquitous, having these skills to be able to converse online and, and kind of get some of the technical know-how that comes with playing video games or uh, chatting and learning about the best practices for using social media or learning what safety looks like if you're talking about yourself on the internet. These are all going to be increasingly essential skills to have because we are now in, in a world where technology is ubiquitous. People are online. Our relationships online are just as real and important and sometimes as impactful um, as what we are doing in the physical world. 
As someone who grew up playing video games without a community like Warcraft, Stuart Duncan believes it could have been a positive influence for him if something like it existed when he was a kid. If I had Warcraft, I would have been able to talk to people. I would have been able to interact with people my own age. I would have been able to share and have people share with me. I would have been able to have fights and, and learn how to you know, work things out with people that I had fights with. Um, I honestly believe my life would be completely 100%, without a doubt, totally different if I had Hawkcraft in my life when I was young. For Kate Ringland, Orcraft highlights that creating safer online spaces that cater to more diverse people is possible, and also that more games can and should be designed with accessibility in mind. I think one of the, the big takeaways about this for me was there are a lot more gamers out there than game designers are necessarily thinking about. And not every game has to be an open, modifiable world. I understand that there are lots of different game experiences that people want to have. But I think that that this is just another signal to game designers that there's a lot more diversity in the in the game players than they than they might have previously thought. And so so maybe we can start thinking about what does it look like if we have kind of, you know, cross-ability teams playing a game? Or what does it look like if we have someone who needs a different sensory experience? How do we build that into the game and still keep play fun? Thanks so much to Stuart Duncan and Kate Ringland. Given the incredible influence of Minecraft and the freedom it provides, it's been used in some really cool ways, like staging virtual concerts and as a tool for teachers to use in their classrooms. One community in Ethiopia even used Minecraft to design urban spaces. That story is next on Games Archive, right after this. Gameplay is a production of Lawson Media. This episode was written and produced by me, James Parkinson. Research and pre-production by our student intern, Maddie Spencer. The gameplay theme was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our artwork is by Keegan Sanford and all other music in this episode from Breakmaster Cylinder. You can follow the show on Twitter, Facebook and Twitch at Gameplay Podcast. We're also on YouTube and Discord. You'll find those links plus transcripts, further reading and so much more on our website, gameplay.co. In 2019, a local community in Ethiopia's capital city, Addis Ababa, looked to turn an informal waste dumping site into a vibrant urban park, and they did it with the help of Minecraft. The Urban Natural Assets Rivers for Life project is funded by the city of Addis Ababa, UN Habitat and Swede Bio, and it aims to revitalise natural urban spaces. Over a four-day workshop, they engaged the local community, including women and children, to redesign the area. Minecraft enabled people to work collaboratively and creatively and think outside the limitations of the real-world environment. They submitted 12 designs, which served as the foundation for the final construction, 
giving people tangible input into how community spaces can serve their own needs. The park was reopened on World Cities Day in 2019 and includes a playground, bike path, benches, lawn areas and gardens. Life was brought back to the river that runs through the park and the people began to return too. The city was even able to provide jobs to locals to take care of the space. I'm James Parkinson. Thanks for listening. 